It would be really helpful to have your Bibles open. So Colossians chapter 3, picking up at verse 12 as we continue in our series. And I said at the beginning of the service, it's our, our second last week, our penultimate week in Colossians. There's also an outline on the back of the news. So that's helpful to you. There's translation points in Dinka and Korean. You can follow along there as well, but let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious Father, how we so desperately need your help in all things but especially, Lord, as we come to your word, would you please be at work this day in the power of your spirit, shaping our understanding, challenging our will, honing our lives, that it all may be for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the constant cycle of children growing out of one size of clothes and into the next set, there usually comes a point in time with one favourite piece of clothing in which the child is not quite ready to accept the reality that the beloved unicorn skirt, I've got a particular case study in mind, uh, the beloved unicorn skirt is just not going to fit anymore. Last week, I walked into Giovanna's room, so that's our youngest, our four-year-old. I walked into her room, and here she is, contorting and twisting herself in all sorts of ways, fiercely determined to make one particular skirt fit. Despite the clear reality that the skirt just wasn't going to fit, she was adamant that she was going to make it happen. I said something like, darling, it doesn't fit anymore. You're so much bigger now, and it's so small. To which she promptly reported, dad, it's special, it does fit. When she uh, finally emerged haphazardly dressed, it was plain to everyone, and perhaps even to herself, that the skirt just didn't fit anymore. The Colossian Christians are going through a similar struggle. Paul has been reminding them, as they have put their trust in the Lord Jesus, that their lives are now hidden in him. His death has become their death. His resurrection has become their resurrection. Jesus isn't an add-on or a bolt-on to their lives, but in Jesus, they have become a whole new people from the inside out. That's their story. But the problem is that not only are there people saying that Jesus isn't enough, that they need special knowledge, spiritual experiences or supplemental rules, but the Colossians, they just keep going back to their former ways of being. Paul says you've got to take it off. So you might remember last week, put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Rid yourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. You're wearing something. You keep going back to these shabby clothes which are not in keeping of who you are, of the glorious reality right now in Christ. Take it off. 
not because we need to earn our salvation, but in recognition of the one who has saved us and is alive in us. It's what we call and understand as the work of sanctification, that as we put our trust in Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God gets to work with us and in us, that we would be growing outwardly to reflect the inward reality that is present and the future glory that awaits. That's the work of sanctification. The defining narrative for the Christian is not you do you, but you do Christ. Because your true story, identity, priorities and future are all now bound up in him. That's your story. And so now, as Paul continues, we see walking with Jesus doesn't just involve a taking off of dispensing with the old wardrobe, but we are to get dressed and get going for the Lord. First, we are to get dressed. So verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Hear what Paul is saying. It's not simply that if we could get rid of all that shabby stuff out of our lives, all that muck, all the stuff not of God, then the, the beauty of our inner selves would be unmasked and free to shine to the world. Now, hear the image. The implication is actually once you take off the things not of God, we're not unveiled as objectively morally perfect or something like that. But the image is that we're, we're kind of left naked and that we need to get dressed with the clothes that God has provided. That the Christian life involves both a taking off and a putting on. And so Paul describes what we're clothed with. We'll be clothed with compassion, a deep sensitivity of, of hearts aching, guts churning to the needs and sorrows of others. Kindness, an intentional intentional consideration of others that responds with generosity and gratitude. Humility, not thinking of ourselves too highly or too often, but rightly in relation with God. Gentleness, an approach to others which is sensitive of the, the footprint and the effect that we have on those around us. And patience, bearing with reacting well, waiting graciously, even with those who seem to have a different alternative timeline or agendas to our own. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. It really is quite the wardrobe, isn't it? I mean, if you wake up in the morning uh, during the week and you think, oh, I'm really struggling with something to wear, just think of this list. There is, there's no struggle of shortage of things to wear here. Shouldn't be the case. And of course, this list isn't meant to be utterly exhaustive, but it's a really great place to start, noting that the heart of all these virtues is that they're relational, that they find their value, they operate as they expressed in the context of relationship and community. It's really easy, hopefully, to be you know, really gentle or humble or patient with oneself that are expressed in the context of community. Amidst all of the issues, very serious issues, facing the Colossians that threaten to tear them apart, these are the ways 
in which they are to express who they are in Christ together. Not some of the time, not occasionally, when an individual deems it as suitable, okay, or comfortable. You know, well, I might show that person over there. I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, okay? But I might show that person over there compassion on this occasion, but really not that person over there. That just seems too costly or awkward. But that we would be clothed constantly and continuously in this way, ready all the time to deploy compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it really incredibly challenging. Not least because so often the situations in which we most need to express these virtues can catch us unaware, unready, or simply unwilling. It might seem to come at too great of a cost, or we might just think we don't have to because we're right. Paul says we must be clothed. It's continuous. Virtues are not transactional, they're characteristic. So the whole image that there's no time for us to think, oh, is this right now in this moment, if you're at work during the week or, or at a school or visiting with friends or just in your family, to think, oh, is this one of those situations right now in which I need to uh, deploy compassion or, or patience or whatever it might be? It's not like we have a moment to say to that person, can you just hang on a second, I just need to take a moment out, <laughs> rush to the wardrobe, grab a bit of compassion or patience, then I'll, I'll come back with that jacket on if that's okay. We need to be ready. So how can we be ready? How can we cultivate these virtues? Well, I think what we need is prayer and practice in the power of the Holy Spirit. With prayer, there will, of course, be really specific situations. Perhaps there's a situation on one of your front lines right now that's on your heart and your mind where you're really praying for God's help to demonstrate all or some of these virtues, to be clothed in these ways. But it could also be really helpful to have a pattern of prayer in your life, perhaps each week, in which praying for something that you're taking off and praying for something that you're putting on. For some time, I found it really helpful that each week I pick one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which look very similar to this list as well, and I pray intentionally that our team here at St. Bart's, including myself, would be shaped in that way. I find that really helpful pattern. You might focus on compassion one week, patience the next. The exciting news, really exciting news, is that as you think about all of your front lines, I guarantee there will be no shortage of opportunities to put all of these things into practice. Isn't that exciting? You have unlimited opportunities to put into practice compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And when it feels really inconvenient or particularly annoying to do so, that's really thrilling because that must mean that this is a defining moment when you get to choose between the way of yourself, in fact, your former self, or Christ at work through you. 
It might not feel particularly exciting at the time, but it is thrilling. Prayer and practice in the power of the Holy Spirit. And incredibly, when we get it wrong with each other, Paul's advice is simple. He implores us to forgive. Verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Having had the great privilege of being here at St. Bart's for a bit over eight years now, I am so thankful for the countless opportunities and in no shortage of times when I've been able to witness or be the recipient of these virtues being put into action. I'm also so thankful for the countless times that people have forgiven me when I have got it wrong. Forgiving one another is not always easy. I'm not suggesting that. But it's made possible, and it should always be our goal, because of the status as forgiven that we have already received in Jesus. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As Michael Bird really helpfully puts it, he says, we don't merely remember that we're forgiven, but we replicate it. The, the painting that Paul is really uh, showing us here is really the most incredible, beautiful image of Christian community. And not only the absence of all those mucky things listed earlier in the chapter, not only closed with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, not only forgiving when we get it wrong, but love is to be like a belt. That's likely the image that Paul is using here, the cord that binds it all together. It's letting, verse 15, the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and verse 16, letting the message of Christ dwell among you. We are to get dressed and get going. So the clothes that we wear, they're not like the formal suit or dress that's reserved for really special occasion, but more like the uniform that we wear and put to work for Christ. So having taken off the things not of God, having implored them to put on the virtues and more, Paul says, okay, uh, given these things are meant to be put in practice, let's consider them, Colossians, for your main front lines. The main front lines of the Colossians, which were church, home, work. Now, it's really important to understand that for the Colossian Christians in the Greco-Roman world, that the household, the whole idea of a household was really substantially different to what we're familiar with today. Households weren't a person living alone or a share house or some form of nuclear family or something like that. But a household was much more complex and involved a whole plethora of diverse people a whole range of people, such as husband and wife, children, extended family, slaves, employees, clients, and more. It was really complex. Even further compounding this, if that wasn't complex enough, much of early Christianity, of course, met in households. There were 
household churches. And whilst we don't know how many of them there were in Colossae, well, we know that there were some because there are some named actually right in this letter. So a household for the Colossians really has all those front lines of church, home and work all rushing together all at once. So can you imagine that as you are seeking to follow Jesus, there is nowhere to hide. You can't just be different at home and then work, or work and then church. The pressure is really on to walk authentically with Jesus in all of these domains. So this is a live issue for the Colossians. And as Paul works through the implications of being clothed in a Christ-like way, he does so with a really classic way of arguing the point in his setting with various pairs of people. So that's what we see here. So wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. So let's look at that in two parts, the family unit and then the work arrangement. So first, the immediate family unit. So wives and husbands, children and fathers. Let's pick up at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So it's important to note that in the ancient world, it was largely uncontested that a man in that culture could basically do whatever they wanted in the home. Women were considered property, and fathers at this time had complete legal control over their children and their fate, and, and children were, were deemed as best not seen. And so what's completely surprising is that when Paul says wives should submit to their husband, he's actually doing something completely countercultural at the time. He's asserting that the wife should choose to submit to their husband, not because they are made to, as was the expectation, not under force or coercion, but as people with choice. With modern eyes, we can read this as Paul being oppressive, but it's culturally radical. When Paul says, as is fitting to the Lord, that phrase is really hotly debated. There's much discussion about it, and the too long, didn't read version is that it could mean three things, probably. It could mean that, in some way, it's affirming aspect of the culture, or it's implying some sort of creation order, or could be some sort of appeal to the headship of Christ. We just don't know, actually. And I think the most biblical, faithful answer is to say that on the basis of these verses alone, we, don't, we just don't have enough to be sure of what is meant specifically here. In fact, I think if someone was looking to really assert the idea, the theology of headship in marriage this would be a really problematic place to go because if you take that Paul is affirming that here, then you also have to somehow grapple with discussions of slaves and masters almost in the same breath just a few verses later. 
I don't think that's the issue in focus right here. Remember, Paul is applying how the virtues are to be lived out in their setting. And what we can be sure of is that what is fitting is that the one who ultimately defines a marriage is not the husband or society, but the Lord. It's remarkable. In a world at the time in which the idea of a marriage based on love was almost totally unheard of, Paul presses not only on the responsibilities of the wife, but you'll note that of the husband, that he must love the wife and not be harsh with her. So Paul says that the the choice to submit is not that to the tyranny of a husband who does as he pleases, as would be totally backed up by their culture, but choosing to submit to the Christ-like love of her spouse. It's extraordinarily radical. It's why any suggestion that violence or anything less than the standard of love is acceptable in marriage, well, well, that would be a complete distortion of Scripture. There's a radical mutuality that Paul is arguing for. We, of course, see the same thing with children, who, whilst they are to obey the parents, which would bring a lot of parents great relief, that was, of course, in keeping with the commandments, but also the culture of the time. Paul impresses an obligation on the dad, verse 21, to not embitter or, or to provoke their kids. So if you're a parent, be really careful about invoking obedience too much by quoting verse 20, okay? Because uh, verse 21 might become the most popular verse in your household very quickly. But Paul, of course, doesn't stop with immediate family. The theme of mutuality continues with the most common work arrangement of the time between slave and master, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters." So slaves were considered property in the ancient world. They were considered a tool that could just be thrown away when a master was finished with them or they were of no perceptive use. It's really abhorrent in our eyes. So you might expect Paul to tell them to rebel or to do something like that. But Paul does something really surprising. He he says, don't just do good work when you'll be rewarded or when you can or you can't, when you can't get away with doing something half-heartedly or half-baked, but serve your master, your earthly master, your boss, with every fibre of your being as if you serve the Lord. So immediate application, that if work is one of your front lines, we really ought to do good work, not just when it's beneficial to us or when we can't get away with doing less. It's what the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity is one of the six M's of being good witnesses in the workplace calls making good work. It's how slaves with perceptively no power within the structures of their world can actually honour God and be messages of the gospel. It's really quite remarkable when you read different accounts of the first and second century 
of the way in which so many slaves through faithful witnessing in their circumstances went on to proclaim the gospel so effectively that the masters became followers of Jesus as well. So this isn't some sort of endorsement of slavery. Paul's doing the really hard work of trying to discern how they can live amidst seemingly intractable circumstances. Trusting that the ultimate reward awaits. Trusting that God will also bring about the ultimate justice. This is a really live issue in Colossae. And if you go on and read the letter of the Philemon, uh, you will see that. And we see, in fact, the beginnings of how slavery was being worked out and reshaped as Paul once again presses mutual obligations, not only to the slave, but also for the master, as we read in chapter 4, verse 1, to provide slaves with what is right and fair, remembering who the real master ultimately is. That's a great reminder for anyone who has people working for them, if you're the boss of anyone, to remember that you have an ultimate master as well. So can you see what Paul is doing here? Uh, We might expect that he'd rush in and overturn lots of what we might consider to be inappropriate, but that's not what he does. It doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place for that, but it's not the priority here. Paul is more realistic than that, but he's also more hopeful than that too. Over the last few weeks, I've really been quite astounded at the number of friends, so many friends, who have really been struggling, really been wrestling how best to be a Christian witness in their workplaces when there have been some real problems and significant injustices going on. It's messy and hard. It's often not clear what is best. Can often feel so powerless to simply overturn the wrongs, but also they're often so humble to recognise that it's hard to judge the situation properly. But time and time again, what has inspired me in their witness is the which day by day, week by week, they have been earnestly seeking what God would desire in that situation not just that which is preferable to them or comfortable. There have been amazing examples of getting dressed and getting going for the Lord. As our true lives are found in Christ, then all that we do and all who we are is for him. Or to paraphrase Tim Keller, The difference between a job and a vocation is who you're called by. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called. Right back at the beginning of the chapter, beginning of the section. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, that is, set apart, dearly loved by God, Our whole lives are vocation. Verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with your, all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you hear that? Whatever you do, whatever is on your agenda this week, whatever is not planned for this week but occurs, it is part of the whatever you do. Whatever we do, verse 17, we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. That phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, carries, I think, the most wonderful connotation, dual connotation. For it means that not only do we represent him, but also that we are empowered by him. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we represent him and we're empowered by him to get dressed and get going for the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much that as we put our trust in Jesus, our whole new identity, our true identity, is found in him. Lord, we thank you also so much for the gift of your spirit. And so we pray that this week that you would continue to help us to take off those things that are not of you, that we would be clothed with compassion and kindness, with humility, gentleness and patience. Lord, please help us to forgive one another especially pray for anyone here who's really wrestling on one of their front lines right now to demonstrate that fruit in whatever way. Lord, please, may you equip them and empower them with every good gift. Lord, please help us to get going on all of our front lines that we might demonstrate these fruit, that they may be made manifest in our lives at home, at work, in our community here, that everything we do, whatever we do, might be for and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.